0: You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Riddle Me That, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode Five Michelle Martinko. It was nineteen seventy nine. On December nineteenth, eighteen year old Michelle Martinko, a senior at Kennedy High School in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, attended a school choir banquet at the nearby Sheraton Inn. Michelle was very involved in school activities singing in the choir, performing in the theater, and baton twirling. Michelle was a gorgeous well dressed blonde, but she was also more mature than most girls her age. She had suffered from scoliosis as an adolescent and had had to wear braces for several years. Now that she was a young woman, she wasn't really aware how stunning she was. Michelle enjoyed dressing up and looking nice, but she didn't engage in much frivolity and had a select few close friends. She had a part-time job at a clothing store in the Lindale Mall and was a hard worker. She had goals, her family said. She was an above-average student and planned to attend Iowa State in the fall of 1980 to study interior design. On this cold December night, Michelle was wearing a black dress, tights, platform heels, and a brown and white rabbit fur jacket. After the banquet and a phone call to her parents around 7 p.m., Michelle drove to the Westdale Mall in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, to buy a new winter coat her mother had put on layaway for her. Westdale was a very new mall. It had opened just a couple of months earlier in October. Michelle worked at a retail shop in a different mall, but had taken a couple of shifts at that chain store's new location in the Westdale Mall in the past few months, so she was familiar with the mall and its surrounding areas. Michelle had asked her friend Jane to come along to the mall with her that night, but Jane had to study, so she couldn't. So Michelle went alone. What could be safer than a busy, brand-new mall at the holidays? She didn't give it a second thought. At the mall, Michelle ran into Tracy Price, a male elementary school acquaintance of hers who was going to see the movie The Jerk with three friends. This was around 7 p.m. They chatted briefly. She also ran into Charles Seidel, who went by Andy. Andy was Michelle's ex. He was a year older than she was, and the two had dated for close to two years before breaking up. Andy was now in college, but was back in town for his winter break. He was at the mall that night to buy Michelle a Christmas gift. He told her not to follow him so he could buy her something in secret. She seemed happy, and they parted, planning to talk later. Michelle also ran into her friend Curtis Thomas, who worked at Chess King in the mall. They walked to Orange Julius and chatted before he returned to finish his shift. Michelle never picked up the coat she had gone to the mall to buy that night. The only thing we can guess is that she decided she didn't like it. She was particular about her wardrobe. The $180 cash her mom had given her to pay for the coat was found still in her purse after she was killed. The mall closed that night at 9 p.m., and after being seen at a jewelry store right around closing time, Michelle never came home that night. She had casual plans to meet some friends at a bar. Eighteen and up was permissible at bars in Iowa in 1979, but when she didn't show, her friends thought nothing of it. But when she failed to come home, her parents were alarmed. Michelle still lived with her parents, Albert and Janet. Her sister was 12 years older and was long out of the house. Michelle had been a late-in-life baby for her mom, who had suffered five miscarriages before giving birth to Michelle at age 44. Now, late at night, Albert Martinko, Michelle's father, drove around looking for his daughter. Meanwhile, her mom Janet called Michelle's friend Jane, the one whom Michelle had asked to go with her to the mall, in the middle of the night, desperately searching for her daughter— Jane said she hadn't seen Michelle since the banquet. Her parents reported her missing around 2 a.m. Police drove around the area and checked the mall parking lot. At 4 a.m., Cedar Rapids Police Officer James Kincaid found the Martinko's 1972 tan Buick sedan parked in the mall lot behind the Penney store. It was not close to the mall entrance. It was about 150 feet from the nearest set of doors. Officer Kincaid peered in the frost-covered window and could see someone inside, whom he assumed was passed out drunk. All the doors were locked save the rear driver's side door. He opened it and could see a person slumped on the front floor and passenger seat. Her legs were under the dash and her torso was draped on the passenger seat face up. It was Michelle and she was dead. Michelle's autopsy found the following. She had suffered 11 stab wounds to the face and upper body, She had 29 total wounds made by a sharp implement, including defensive wounds on her hands in the form of slices between her fingers, and a severe head injury from being bludgeoned with an object on one side of her head. She had lost one-third of her blood after a fatal stab wound to her sternum severed her aorta, and she bled to death. No weapon was found, and the autopsy report said the medical examiner could not be certain whether the murder weapon was a knife or some other kind of blade. I spoke with Matt Denlinger, the Cedar Rapids investigator who broke this case. He told me he wondered whether the weapon could have been a 4- or 5-inch folding knife. The weapon had to have a fairly substantial blade to be able to penetrate Michelle's sternum all the way to her aorta. This type of knife would also have a substantial handle that could have been used to inflict the head injury. The scene was so horrific and the brutal murder so unusual in the area that the entire police department worked the scene. One of the officers was retired Detective Harvey Denlinger, father to investigator Matt Denlinger, who was five years old at the time. Michelle's Buick was removed to the police lab for processing. There was blood all over the interior of the car, on the windows, front seat, floor, dashboard, and on the passenger door. There was more blood on the gearshift handle, which was the kind that mounts to the steering column, and on the steering wheel itself. The steering wheel and light and turn signal switches were also flecked with tattered bits of fur from the rabbit fur coat Michelle was still wearing. No useful prints were found in the vehicle, but a chevron pattern was observed in blood inside the car and on the push button and exterior door handle of the driver's side door, indicating that the killer had worn gloves. The chevron pattern was clearly visible in dust that was on the handle. The pattern matched that seen on typical household dishwashing gloves, but none were found in or around the car. Investigators also observed that some areas of the car had been wiped down in a clear attempt to obscure evidence. Investigator Denlinger tells me that the following conclusions were drawn by the investigators looking at the car. They believed that Michelle had returned to the car after shopping, placing a bag with some small purchases on the back seat. She then got into the car and sat in the driver's seat. The door was flung open by her attacker, who hit her hard on the head. He then pushed her across the bench seat, or she slid across to get away from him, and he climbed in. Denlinger does not believe that the assailant ever closed the driver's side door, as no blood was found on the handle or paneling. Whatever happened happened so fast the door was open the entire time. Denlinger theorizes that the blow to Michelle's head stunned her, but failed to knock her out, and she began to fight back. Her attacker went into survival mode, stabbing at her repeatedly, inflicting multiple defensive wounds on her before striking the fatal blow. We can only presume that the attacker's goal was to sexually assault Michelle, but because she fought and likely screamed, and they were visibly struggling in a very public parking lot, he was forced to kill her and make his escape. It was 1979, and the use of DNA technology in crime solving was at least a half a decade off, and Michelle had not been sexually assaulted. Nonetheless, the evidence in Michelle's case, the dress, tights, and underwear she was wearing, swabs taken from her person, her coat, and samples lifted from inside the car, were carefully preserved by investigators desperate to catch the murderer of this vibrant young woman. Janet Martinko had to identify her daughter's butchered body. She called her one remaining daughter, Janelle, to tell her the horrific news of her sister's unthinkable murder. The senseless, apparently motiveless, and very public killing struck fear in the heart of the community and impacted the holiday shopping season with women afraid to go to the mall or shop alone. Investigators began the time-consuming process of meticulously retracing Michelle's last hours, searching for witnesses and running down tips. Of course, everyone who knew Michelle was under suspicion. This included people who had dated her, especially the one who had been at the mall that night. Andy Seidel, Michelle's ex, was a focus of the investigation for years. According to Michelle's sister Janelle, the Martinko family suspected him from the outset. Apparently, Andy had not taken the breakup well, and the family felt that he was possessive and jealous. He was at the mall that night, one of the last people to see Michelle. The Martincos thought Andy had acted inappropriately at her funeral, crying and hugging Michelle's dead body and asking over and over again if she had still loved him when she died. Soon afterwards, he joined the Navy and left the area. His mom had provided an alibi for Andy for that night, but since family alibis are hardly ironclad, there remained a shadow of suspicion on Andy for decades. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live, Moigua. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blah. And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty Hefty Hefty. Ah, smell the difference? Hefty UltraStrong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm. you can stay one step ahead of stinky. And for a bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Another guy whom Michelle had dated casually, Mike Rybrick, was questioned and even shown the crime scene photos, even though he had been 100 miles away at college when the crime occurred. Everyone was a suspect, because police really had nothing to go on. But they believed that the killer likely knew Michelle. It seemed too vicious and personal a crime to be random. In June 1980, two women who had been at the mall that night were subjected to hypnosis in order to aid their memories of the evening. They both recalled a man in his early 20s, five 5'11", 170 pounds, with brown eyes and curly dark hair, at the mall that night. A composite sketch was released, but led nowhere a man named Dennis McKee was convicted in the horrific rape of a Cedar Rapids woman in November 1979, and some detectives believed he was a likely suspect in Michelle's case. But there was nothing connecting McKee to Michelle, and no arrests were made. Police weren't even certain where Michelle's murder had occurred. Someone must have reported that they saw Michelle's Buick Electra parked in front of the penny store earlier in the evening. Remember, it was found in the lot behind the store by Officer Kincaid because police in 1980 said their strongest theory was that the murder had happened elsewhere and the car, with Michelle's body inside, was driven back to the Westdale parking lot. When it was found, the keys were still inside and it was positioned crookedly and partially across a parking line, making it appear to have been hastily parked. Investigator Denlinger does not believe that the killer moved Michelle's car. There was no blood found on the driver's side door, which, he would have had to have touched in order to get out of the vehicle after parking it. He would certainly have been covered in blood and would have left some on the door when he opened it to step out. A $10,000 reward for information as to the identity of the killer of Michelle Martinko was offered in February 1980, funded by Cedar Rapids business owners. According to the Cedar Rapids Gazette, in the first year of the investigation, investigators interviewed 835 people— Michelle's life was scrutinized, the school yearbook poured over, all her acquaintances, colleagues, fellow students, and contacts checked out. Psychics, sketch artists, polygraphs, and hypnotists were utilized. Because there was no proof that the killer was a man, females were included on the potential suspect list, which included more than 80 names. Several people came to police and confessed to the murder, but they were ruled out as false confessors. The case remained open and unsolved for nearly four decades— With the arrival of improved DNA technology, investigators began to investigate the case anew. In 2005, Detective Doug Larison, a high school classmate of Michelle's, took over the cold case. While reviewing the case file, he noticed something. As I mentioned earlier, the killer was believed to have been wearing ordinary rubber household gloves, so no prints were available from the scene. And there was no sexual assault, so there was no rape kit to provide DNA. But there was blood inside the car. Crime scene techs had carefully lifted samples of this blood from various areas of the car and preserved them in evidence. And a previous investigator had sent scrapings taken from the gear shift of the car to a lab for testing. Larison found the lab report in the file. It said there was DNA. Male DNA. This is when investigators realized that the killer must have cut himself and deposited blood at the scene. The next item to be tested, Michelle's black dress, still sitting in the evidence room 25 years after her murder. Tests came back from a small blood spot on the back of the dress that were consistent with the first sample from the gear shift. DNA from the same man was on Michelle's dress. Police had a DNA profile of their killer. Investigators were convinced that the matching blood samples were the key to the case. The lead investigator said in 2006, quote, there is no doubt whatsoever that this is the killer's blood. All we need is a name, and once we get a DNA match, we'll have our killer. There was no match in CODIS to the profile, so police doggedly collected voluntary DNA samples from more than 125 men in their quest to find Michelle's killer, including Mike Wirick, Tracy Price, and other classmates, friends, men who knew Michelle even remotely. They whittled the 80 person suspect list down to virtually no one. Thanks to the DNA evidence, police said that three, quote, major male suspects had been eliminated, but would not name names. Now we know that one of these was Andy Seidel, Michelle's ex, who was finally cleared of involvement in the case. So was the convict McKee. After he died of cancer, his DNA was tested, and he was eliminated as well. In 2009, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation established a cold case unit, Michelle's case was on the DCI's list of cases that had run into a brick wall. In 2013, an anonymous tip came into Lynn County Crime Stoppers. The tipster was deemed to have credible information, it's not clear what this was, and he or she named Michelle's brother-in-law, John Stonebreaker, as her killer. This was not true, as investigators confirmed when they took a sample of John's DNA and compared it to the killer's. And... John had done nothing but advocate for his wife Janelle, Michelle's sister, and the Martinko family, acting as a family spokesman and urging the public to call in any information, however insignificant it might seem. Cedar Rapids Police Cold Case Unit Investigator Matt Denlinger was assigned to the ice cold case in 2015. He had been just five years old when Michelle was killed, and his father, Cedar Rapids Detective Harvey Denlinger, had been at the scene and helped conduct interviews on the case. Matt Denlinger spent hours reviewing this 7,800-page case file. He worked to eliminate people using the DNA sample that had been obtained from Michelle's dress in 2005 and regularly tested the sample against records in CODIS, but he was frustrated by the lack of progress. In 2016, he got the idea to submit the suspected killer's DNA to Parabon Nanolabs for DNA phenotyping after his own wife had received her results from Ancestry.com. Computer-generated images of what the Martinko suspect likely looked like, based on his DNA profile, were presented to the public in 2017. The man shown was white with blondish hair and bluer green eyes. Tips poured in based on the image, but again, they led nowhere. Once the Golden State Killer case broke, Denlinger decided to go one step further and authorize genetic genealogical research. Using GEDmatch, Parabon linked the DNA from the gearshift and dress to a woman named Brandy Jennings in Vancouver, Washington, who was deemed to be the second cousin, once removed, of the killer. Brandy later said she had forgotten all about uploading her DNA profile to GEDmatch. Genetic genealogists had to trace Brandy's family tree back to all eight of her great-grandparents, and then tracked down descendants from each of these four sets of ancestors and obtained DNA samples to determine which branch the killer was related to. Denlinger collected samples from two of the branches, and Parabon was able to eliminate them as being related to the killer. Then, DNA from a woman in Lisbon descended from the third branch provided the link. This was Janice Burns, a first cousin of the suspect. Janice willingly gave her DNA to investigators— and it was confirmed that the suspect was her cousin, one of three brothers named Burns. Two of these brothers still lived in the Manchester, Iowa area, about 45 minutes from Cedar Rapids, and the third lived in Davenport. This part of the story is where investigators are forced to conduct undercover stakeouts and rifle through people's garbage. Detectives collected trash observed by them to have been discarded by two of the Burns brothers, Kenneth and Donald, gathering a toothbrush from one and a straw from the other, and tested those items for DNA. Neither was a match to the DNA profile in Michelle's case. Finally, on October ninth, 2018, Matt Denlinger and his partner followed the third brother, Jerry Lynn Burns, to the Pizza Ranch restaurant in Manchester and watched him enjoy his meal. When he left the table, they swooped over and scooped up the drinking straw they had observed him using. Testing by the Iowa DCI showed that the DNA on Jerry Burns' straw was a perfect match to the DNA on Michelle Martinko's dress and the blood on the gear shift. The odds that it belonged to anyone else were 1 in 100 billion. Brandy Jennings, whose name was in the arrest warrant because she was a link in the familial chain leading to the suspect, later said that she didn't even know Jerry Burns and she had no ties to Iowa that she was aware of. She said she had no regrets about uploading her DNA profile leading to the capture of a killer, even if he was her relative. Detectives arrived at Jerry Burns' workplace and questioned him for more than an hour. Matt Denlinger had a hidden camera and mic hidden in his coffee cup, and footage of the interview is available online. Burns did not show any emotion. He sat calmly and spoke with investigators and continued to take calls and texts on his phone, even while sitting at his desk. Detectives did not show their hand, and when they asked him about Michelle's case, he denied knowing Michelle or being involved. He said all he knew about the case was what he saw in the news. He refused to permit detectives to take a DNA sample without an attorney until they produced a warrant and took a swab. Then they told him that they had already run his DNA and asked him how his DNA could have gotten in Michelle's vehicle. To this, Burns said he had no plausible explanation. Here are some excerpts of the conversation. Detective Denlinger, the reality is, we're not we're not here on a whim. We're here to confirm what we already know. I'm telling you, Jerry, I already know that your DNA is going to match the DNA that we have on file. The reality is, we have your DNA at the crime scene, and so we know you were there that night. This happened, but what we don't know, Jerry, is why it happened. Burns still continued to deny involvement, just telling detectives repeatedly to just test the DNA sample they had taken. He said at least twenty-five times. Just test it. Denlinger, did you murder someone that night, Jerry? Burns, test the DNA. Denlinger, Jerry. Burns, test the DNA. Denlinger, why did this happen, Jerry? Burns, test the DNA. Denlinger, what happened? Burns, I don't know. I was not there that night. Denlinger, you don't know why this happened? Burns, I was not there that night. Denlinger, well, we know better than that. Besides repeatedly telling investigators to test the DNA, Burns also volunteered that he was aware of genetic genealogy, which detectives found odd. And Burns had failed to flat-out deny that he killed Michelle until Denlinger reminded him that he had not done so. It was clear that he was, at least in part, anticipating this police interest in him. Jerry Burns was arrested for first-degree murder immediately after the interview. It was December 19, 2018, 39 years to the day after Michelle's murder. Denlinger had selected that date for the interview deliberately, hoping it would rattle Burns, but had not planned on making an arrest. But his supervisor, who had been listening in on the interview from across the street, had been funneling Denlinger questions via text during the meeting with Burns. Denlinger told Burns that the texts were from his wife, conferring about holiday shopping and plans but the sergeant in charge was dictating some of the questions, looking for signs of guilt sufficient to justify an arrest. Finally, the sergeant determined that Burns' responses were indicative of guilt and authorized Denlinger to make the arrest immediately. Burns showed no emotion as he was mirandized, cuffed, and led away. In the squad car on the way to the station, Burns ignored a question from Denlinger about what had happened that night, Instead, he went off about his disabled cousin Brian, who, he said, had gone missing on December nineteenth, two 2013 from his home in Delaware County. December nineteenth was the same date that Michelle was killed. Denlinger told me they haven't been able to determine what happened to Brian, who just disappeared. When Denlinger persisted in asking Burns about Michelle's murder, Burns said he didn't remember anything and wondered aloud whether it was possible to block out something like that. He then said he had an upcoming dentist appointment and wondered aloud if the dentist would make a house call in jail. Later at the station, when they followed up with him, he said that he knew that sometimes people block out traumatic events. Although he would not cop to anything involving Michelle, he did admit to having been at the Westgate Mall on occasion over the years. Out of the blue, Burns also brought up the case of Jody Husentrude, the blonde news anchor who famously vanished from Mason City, Iowa, in 1995 he volunteered that he had seen her story on the news as well. Jody's case, 25 years old in 2020, remains unsolved. Interestingly, Jody looks very similar to Michelle. But Investigator Denlinger doubts whether Burns could be responsible for Jody's disappearance from her apartment-building parking lot. Jody's TV market in Mason City did not cover the area of Iowa where Burns lived. There would have been no way for him to be exposed to her friendly, blonde face on his TV. It seems more likely that he became pruriently interested in her case after the fact, as we know some killers take pleasure in learning of the crimes of others that they admire. Okay, back to the DNA that linked Burns to the Martinko crime scene. Arrest documents indicate that police believe that Jerry Burns cut himself while stabbing Michelle, slitting open the flimsy rubber glove he was wearing, and leaving behind his blood on her dress and the gear shift. Upon Burns' arrest, they photographed his hands and arms, looking for old scars where perhaps Michelle had scratched him in her last minutes of life. Burns was arraigned on first-degree murder charges and pleaded not guilty. His bond was set at $5 million cash. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We're proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers... Aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When he was arrested, 64-year-old Jerry Burns owned Advanced Coating Concepts, a powder coating company in Manchester, Iowa. He had three grown children and was a respected business owner and member of the community. He had grown up in Manchester, a town of only about 5,000, and graduated from West Delaware High School there. People who knew him were stunned at the allegations that he was responsible for the infamous area cold case. At the time of Michelle's murder, Jerry Burns was 25, had been married for four years, and was a father. He was a familiar face everyone considered friendly, quiet, and well-respected. A high school friend told the Cedar Rapids Gazette that Burns had run track in high school and was in Future Farmers of America. For a time, he sold farming equipment and he had built a home on land his parents had once farmed. Burns had previously co-owned a local convenience store on Highway 13 in Manchester called Easy Pickens before beginning his powder coating company. His friend, who had known him for 50 years, said of Burns' linked to the crime, quote, You'll never convince me he did something like that. A man who went to high school with Burns and knew him when Burns worked for John Deere Company said, quote, "Never did I ever think he had a mean bone in his body. That's why everybody in town is just like I am, shocked." A search of computers taken from Burns's home and office after his arrest were found to contain hundreds of damning searches involving deviant sexual activity. According to the Cedar Rapids Gazette, quote, the searches involved Burns going to websites containing videos focused on blonde women as victims of strangulation during sex, rape, necrophilia, kidnapping, and assault during sex, including stabbing and killing. Many of the searches on Burns's computer were recent, so it was evident that even now, nearly four decades after the crime, Burns continued to fixate on violence and murder inflicted on blonde women. There were multiple searches a week, usually in the late afternoon, evening, and sometimes after midnight. Matt Denlinger told me that the searches were really all variations on the same very specific theme, killing young blonde women and having sex with their dead bodies. According to court documents, the searches demonstrated quote, a fetish was sexually assaulting and killing women. But Jerry Burns did not rape Michelle Martinko. There was no evidence of sexual assault. There was not even robbery. We can only wonder what Burns's intentions were that night. Did he see her at the mall and fixate on her? Did he intend to rape her, but she struggled and perhaps screamed, and he felt he had to kill her and make his escape? Or was the experience of murdering someone, anyone, his only motivation? As we know, Jerry arrived at the mall prepared, armed with a knife and rubber gloves. It is not clear whether Burns's family had any idea what he was up to investigators noted that his family was polite and cordial to the detectives and cooperative with searches of their homes. Burns' daughter Jennifer has stood by him, saying she cannot believe her dad would do this. His brother Don agrees. But Burns' wife Patricia was not by his side throughout this whole ordeal. She had killed herself in 2008. Matt Denlinger told me that it is his understanding that she had a history of depression and a possible previous suicide attempt. But, of course, we can't help but wonder if she discovered something about her husband that made Patricia end her own life. With his wife's suicide and his cousin Brian's vanishing 34 years to the day from Michelle's murder, there are definitely unanswered questions about whether Burns's illicit activities impacted his loved ones. It's worth noting that Delaware County Sheriff John Leclerc, who is the chief law enforcement officer in the county where Burns resided, Delaware County, said, Authorities, quote, don't have any reason to suspect Burns in either case. Jerry Burns' trial commenced in February 2020. Michelle's black dress, placed front and center on a mannequin and pockmarked with labels emphasizing the many stab marks, was a sober reminder of the murdered young woman who was at the center of the proceeding. The prosecutor laid out the state's theory that Michelle was the victim of a random attack by a stranger, Jerry Burns. Burns had seen Michelle at the mall, followed her out, and attacked her as she sat in her car. She was hit on the head with a knife handle and fell back onto the seat. Burns then stabbed her as she fought back, cutting himself in the process and leaving a minute amount of blood on the dress. Police investigators testified that they believed there was such a small amount of his blood found on Michelle's dress because he had been wearing gloves, so most of the blood from a cut on his hand would have been contained inside the glove. They posited that the killer had to adjust the gear shift, which had gotten knocked out of park during the struggle, and in doing so, deposited his blood there as well. As expected, the prosecution stated that Burns was the only possible contributor of the DNA found on Michelle and the gear shift, and that, ergo, he must have been her killer. No one else's DNA was found on Michelle, just Burns's and her own. Burns' defense lawyer Leon Spies called an expert, Michael Spence, who testified that the DNA could have been transfer DNA, the kind that is passed along by a handshake or touching something. Michelle had, after all, attended a banquet with a lot of people and shopped and socialized at the mall. Spence also tried to cast doubt on the accuracy of the DNA results, pointing out correctly that all of Michelle's clothing had been bundled together in one evidence bag and there could have been cross-contamination. Since the DNA on the dress was only 3 nanograms, smaller than a speck of dust, it easily could have transferred from something else. Burns's attorneys stated that since Burns had been to Westdale Mall with his family in the past, it was possible that DNA he left behind at the mall could have transferred to Michelle's dress while she was at the mall on December 19th. But this mall was almost brand new, and Burns was not able to prove that he had ever been there in its first two months. And the prosecution countered that if it were the case that the dress had just picked up touch DNA, they would have found DNA from multiple other people that Michelle had come into contact with that evening, and they had not. The only foreign DNA on Michelle belonged to Jerry Burns and no one else. Burns did not take the stand in his own defense. His attorneys called only one defense witness, Michael Spence, and no alibi was presented. However, Burns' lawyer was successful in having the electronic searches excluded from the trial evidence. The evidence of what the prosecution called, quote, sadistic deviant pornography on Burns' computer should not be permitted to show motive, attorney spies argued. Judge Faye Hoover, erring on the side of caution, agreed, and the jury heard nothing about the computer searches involving the murder and rape of young blonde women. Attempts by the defense to exclude all the DNA evidence on grounds that Parabon had uploaded Burns's profile to GEDmatch without a warrant were not effective. Jerry Burns was convicted of Michelle's murder in early 2020. It took a jury only three hours to find him guilty, despite the fact that no evidence was presented at trial that he had any connection to Michelle. Only his DNA linked him to her. His family sat in the courtroom throughout the trial, quietly supporting Burns, who remained stoic throughout the proceeding. Prior to his sentencing, Burns addressed the court, saying that somebody else had stabbed Michelle that night. He didn't know who or why. He then turned and addressed his family, thanking them for their support. His attorney made a motion for a new trial, saying that there was new evidence pertaining to alleged music lessons Michelle had that night. He maintained the possibility that someone knew her regular routine and was waiting for her at the mall. Two music books that Michelle should have been carrying that night have never been found, he said. This last-ditch effort was not enough to save Jerry. Michelle didn't even take piano lessons. The judge denied the motion, and pursuant to Iowa law sentenced Burns to life without parole. After the conviction Janelle Stonebreaker, Michelle's older sister, and her husband John released a statement read aloud by John which said, quote, "Janelle and I are very pleased and grateful for the work of several generations of Cedar Rapids Uniform Police and detectives in bringing Mr. Burns to justice. From the leadership on down, they never gave up." Janelle added, quote, "We don't exactly know the why's and some of the details, but we definitely know who did it, and that was terribly important to us." I wish my parents could be here to see this. The Stonebreakers also expressed sadness for the Burns family, having been kept in the dark about Burns' guilt all those years. Michelle's parents were not around to see justice done in their daughter's case. The toll on them from her murder was indescribable. They both went into virtual seclusion and began suffering from illnesses. Janelle said that her sister's murder destroyed their mother and that their father had become consumed by anger both parents succumbed to their ailments by 1998. Before she died, Janet said she doubted the case would ever be solved. And, without genetic genealogy, inconceivable to Janet in 1979, it would almost certainly not have been. Michelle's case is yet another in what is becoming a long list of crimes solved by genetic genealogy which appear to have been entirely random in nature. Michelle was killed because she was a beautiful young blonde woman who was at the mall alone on the same night that Jerry Burns went there to select a victim. It is unknown whether Jerry Burns is responsible for any other crimes. His record includes only a couple of traffic violations. As we said, he mentioned Jody Hoosenthoot's abduction and presumed murder, but there's no reason to believe that he had anything to do with it. And he denied it in a December twenty-fourth, 2020 interview. There are some other cold cases in Iowa that Jerry could have perpetrated, but as of now, there is nothing linking him to any of them. It seems possible that Michelle was Burns' only murder, and it provided fodder for his sadistic fantasies for decades after the crime. Jerry Burns' name never came up in the Martinko case file, and he was never on police radar, yet he will spend the rest of his life in prison for her murder. Like most of the cases I'm covering on this podcast, this is truly a case which would probably never have been solved without this novel crime-solving technique. It's worth mentioning that Jerry Burns has said that he is pursuing a new trial. He claims that new information has surfaced, and he has hired a prominent attorney featured in the docuseries Making a Murderer to represent him. Time will tell whether there is any merit to his claims. As of now, he has not filed any documents appealing his conviction or requesting a new trial. The Burns trial was only the second trial in the nation to result in a guilty verdict for a case solved through genetic genealogy. Let's hope the guilty verdict sticks if Burns goes through with his motions seeking to reverse it. After 41 years, Michelle Martinko's case is finally closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Special thanks to Investigator Matt Denlinger of the Cedar Rapids Police Department for speaking with me about this case. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Bettencourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Bettencourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at DNAIDpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID podcast on Instagram, at DNAIDpodcast on Twitter, and on Facebook at DNAIDpodcast. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.